The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. in New York, and here is your top five at five. Risk off. Stocks looking to bounce back after suffering their worst day in weeks. Bond yields remain under pressure. Our exclusive conversation with Guggenheim's Scott Minard, including whether he is standing by his very contrarian call on rates. Breaking news, the White House taking on big tech with a new executive order looking to put the hammer down. Elon Moy standing by with more. A third shot, Pfizer taking on the variant saying you may need another jab and soon. American lawmakers calling for answers as China cracking down on big tech as well. And butter that popcorn, movies making a big comeback with the Black Widow out today as Disney makes its latest strategic bet. All happening on this Friday, July 9th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good Friday morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us. There is so much to do on this busy Friday, but let us start here with breaking news. As the Biden administration taking another big swing at big tech with a new executive order, let us find out what is in it. Elon Moy joining us now with details from Washington. Elon. Well, Brian, the White House will announce today a new executive order aimed at reining in big tech. The administration will argue the companies are using their dominant positions to lock out new competitors, hurt small businesses, extract monopoly profits, and exploit your personal information. In an exclusive interview, White House Chief Economic Advisor Brian Deese told me he sees a direct link between increasing consolidation and declining innovation. Those platforms, you're absolutely right, have uh, brought innovation um, uh, to our economy and improved uh, services. They've also created uh, significant problems, uh, problems for users in terms of their own privacy and security, problems for small businesses in terms of entering markets. Now, the executive order calls for greater scrutiny of tech mergers with a focus on serial mergers, the impact on privacy and what's known in the industry as killer acquisitions of nation competitors. The White House is also encouraging the FTC to craft new rules for how tech platforms can collect data and track their users. In addition, it wants the agency to ban unfair methods of competition on Internet marketplaces in order to protect small businesses. Now, these moves are part of a government-wide effort to reframe the debate around competition, Brian. This is not just about price anymore. It's about wages, job mobility, privacy. And the White House says those are the signs of a healthy market and a healthy economy. Back over to you. Okay, so Elon, the White House, it wants to do all of these things. Can it actually do them on its own, even being the White House? 
Well, so this is an important point because the short answer here is no. What the White House is saying is that it is encouraging strongly the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, to write these new rules. And that's important because the FTC is an independent agency. It can decide what enforcement cases to bring. It can decide you know, how to craft its own regulations. However, the White House has recently installed uh, Lena Khan as chairwoman of the FTC. She has been a vocal critic of big tech, and she has been one of the people who has argued for a broader framework for the way that we think about monopoly power to move beyond price, to move beyond consumer welfare, and to really think about uh, wages and other things and other ways that, uh, that these tech companies might be uh, bringing their power to bear in the marketplace. Well, we know that Amazon has asked that Ms. Khan be removed from negotiations, correct? They, they think she has made her position on their company known that she may be, for lack of a better term, biased coming in? Do we know how other technology firms feel or how the FTC itself may feel about this really, really, literally multi-trillion dollar topic a lot? Right. Well, you know, Lena Khan's sort of uh, namesake landmark paper was called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. So her views on Amazon have been out there for quite a while. In order for her to actually recuse herself, one of the other commissioners has to ask her to do that and sort of put that uh, up for a vote. That hasn't happened just yet. But clearly, tech companies are going to be on alert and watching this um, because it does signal you know, new scrutiny of, of mergers, both past and present. Alon Moy with some big time breaking news on arguably the single most important sector, maybe not just for the U.S. stock market, Alon, but for the global stock market as well. Alon, we'll see you all day. Thank you very much. All right. Now to your money and how the global markets are setting up their Friday. And here's some good news. Futures are making a nice bounce back right now. We are higher across the board, not by a lot on the Nasdaq. It's up 18, but Dow futures up 165. All this after the markets took a big turn down on Thursday with money coming out of nearly every part of the market. So unless we get a big move higher today, and we could, the Dow is set to drop this week. It is down just over 1% right now. Now, bond yields have also come down mightily in the past couple of weeks, as a matter of fact. Yields right now on the 10-year Treasury note are holding fairly steady, but at 1.33%. They fell as low to one and a quarter percent yesterday. That is the lowest mark since February. Now, the markets may be skittish, but perhaps that could be good news if you're looking to take out a mortgage or refinance your current home. Mortgage rates should tick down. All right, so let's stay right there with bonds and yields because we caught up once again with Guggenheim part partner Scott Minard. This just two months after his very contrarian call on rates that they would fall, not rise. A call he is doubling down on today. I don't really see uh, any significant uh, resistance for the continuation and the decline of yields until we get to 1%. Uh, mm -hmm. And then um, I don't think that's that significant. Um, meaning, you know, there, there is uh, a support for yields if they don't go lower. But it's not exceptionally strong, and uh, technically, it looks like we're going back to the lows, which would be 65 basis points. Well, we will have much more on our conversation with Scott later on in the show, but let's stretch it out a bit, talk macro, and bring in 
Joanne Feeney, Portfolio Manager and Advisors at Advisors Capital Management. Joanne, uh, good to have you on on this Friday. Are you and your team surprised that rates have come down so far so fast in the last few weeks? And regardless of what the reaction may be, what does it mean? Yeah, good morning, Brian. Always great to see you. Um, it certainly has been a surprise that rates have come down this much because, you know, as a portfolio manager and an economist, I can tell you that longer term interest rates are really driven by fundamentals. And those are including two things. One, inflation expectations. But a second thing, uh, the second part of the interest rate it depends on real economic growth. Now, clearly, we're in a period of particularly high economic growth as we emerge from this COVID-induced recession. But even longer term, if you look at global growth, one and a half, two and a half percent, you know, we should expect even after the initial phases of recovery for growth to stay elevated because recessions just take a long time to unwind. And so, you know, that suggests to us that what we're seeing in interest rates is a rush to safety, right, as some of the risk factors have become elevated, whether it's COVID, whether it's the G20 meeting and, and the talk recently about raising corporate taxes around the world in developed countries. Those are two important risk factors that I think are perhaps right now driving investors to safety. And when we talk to clients, we hear those fears, as well as fears about inflation eventually coming back up again. So we do expect that rates will eventually have to reflect those two key fundamentals, higher inflation and also the, the, the real economic growth that's, that's definitely out there and is likely to continue at elevated levels for, for some years now. Well, that's isn't that the paradox, Joanne, because we want good economic growth. We need you need me on that wall. We want all these things, but we don't want them too good. Right. Because too good means massive inflation, shortages, wage pressure. Uh, Where are we right now? Is it as good as it will get or is it sustainably good or is it dangerous from an inflation perspective? Yeah, I don't think it's so dangerous. I mean, we're certainly seeing the shortages that come from a quick restart of an economy when supply chains are still somewhat, you know, fragmented because of what's happening with COVID around the world. Uh, But, you know, we are seeing a pickup in manufacturing. We're seeing a pickup in productivity as labor, you know, is slow to come back to the workforce. The way we see it is we've gone through phase one of the reopening. That was the initial reopening here in the United States. We're looking now into phase two, which is going to be, we think, the post-Labor Day return of the workforce. You know, kids are back in school. Those extra unemployment benefits run out. More vaccinations in the U.S. We do expect that second phase, and that's going to, you know, not lead to a pickup in the growth rate. Obviously, the year-over-year growth rate is as high as it's ever been and ever going to be. But then we also look to phase three of recovery, which is when the international recovery really takes hold. And for that to happen, we need those vaccinations to ramp up around the world. So when you look at the investing environment, you know, when we're selecting individual stocks for our clients, we're actually building in more international exposure now than we did before, because yeah. we do think that phase three is going to be a nice afterburner to the recovery that's starting here in the United States. That's a theme I've been reading a lot about in, you know, notes coming out, macro notes from big banks and whatever, is that Europe may be a few months behind us, but that in vaccinations and recovery, but that may make Europe a better bet in the markets than the U.S. What would you say to that, Joanne? Well, I think there's definitely room for that. But you also see there are also some risks associated with that international exposure because, you know, vaccinations have just really gotten underway there and it's going to take a long time. 
And, you know, the U.S. economy is a far more flexible, agile economy. So we're, I think, going to do better at the bounce back. So you want some international exposure, not just Europe, but Asia and Latin America, uh, where they're also really struggling with COVID. But, you know, in the U.S., you also have plenty of companies to invest in that are multinationals whose customers are spread out all over the world. So when we look, we, we find it's a really useful thing right now to include some of that international uh, and investors may even want to have a separate account that's purely international. But we find smart cyclicals a place to be, technology for growth, and also some dividend as well as international exposure. And that's what we're building. That's what we've built into client accounts already. And we continue to focus there. We talk about vaccine passports. Maybe we need an investing passport. Have your own account ready to go international. Joanne Feeney, it's a real pleasure to have you on this Friday morning. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. You too, Brian. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. All right. When we come back, more of our exclusive conversation with Guggenheim Scott Minard, including whether the markets are poised for a correction and whether cryptos will continue to fall. He made a big call on Bitcoin that was correct. What does he see now? Plus, denim in demand. Levi's absolutely crushing it on earnings. It says the better days are still ahead. And then one of the most valuable American tech startups taking its first step toward going public. A very busy hour still ahead. Worldwide Exchange returns after this with Dow Futures up 160. A turnaround Friday perhaps ahead. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. All right, welcome back. Will you need a third vaccine shot soon? You may if Pfizer has its way. Let's find out more on that and some other key headlines on this Friday morning. Christina Partsinevelis is here. Christina, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So we have Pfizer and BioNTech have announced they are developing a COVID booster shot. The companies say that clinical studies on the third shot could begin as early as next month, depending on regulatory approval. Pfizer says it is seeing waning immunity from its initial two-shot vaccine amid the rise of the highly transmissible Delta variant strain of COVID. Executives from both Pfizer and BioNTech have repeatedly said people will likely need a booster shot within 12 months of getting fully vaccinated. China's security regulators are reportedly setting up a team to review plans by companies they are seeking initial public offerings abroad. This, according to Reuters, which adds that companies looking to list offshore will also need to get the OK from the relevant ministry. Breaking from a decades-old setup that did not require businesses to get a formal go-ahead from any authorities. 
Meanwhile, here back in the United States, two senators are calling on the SEC to look into whether Didi misled U.S. investors ahead of its IPO last week. Republican Bill Haggerty and D- Democrat Chris Van Hollen, who sit on the Senate Banking Committee, revealing the move to the Financial Times. The lawmakers say the agency should find out whether investors had been misled at all. And shares of Levi Strauss are higher after easily topping estimates with its second quarter results thanks to a strong demand in the United States and China. The retailer also raising its full year revenue and profit outlook. The company's CEO revealing on the earnings call that about 35 percent of customers in the United States have changed waist size during the pandemic. Some up, some down, forcing people to go out and update their wardrobe. No comment, Brian. Back to you. It's what we talked about with the summer of apparel. I mean, uh, yes, yeah, some up, some down. But uh, the, the data says, unfortunately, Christina, mostly up. they are up. I mean, mm-hmm. we had a study a couple of months ago that uh, the average American had gained, unfortunately, a, a fairly signif- a significant amount of weight over the last year or so. So the clothing makers are reaping the benefits. for a big summer. Yeah, but we're all going to get back into shape while watching CNBC on the treadmill this morning or at night. Wherever you Absolutely. Are. Just watching CNBC right now on the on the treadmill, on the exercise. I'm sure bike. there's somebody doing that right now. And we're talking to that person. Not us. <laughs> no, not, not us. us. But we not are us. <laughs> and, that, and that's half the battle. Christina, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people uh, needing some new wardrobes out there. All right, on deck. After months of pandemic delays, the Black Widow spinning her box office web this weekend. So will this summer once again the summer of going to the movies. We'll talk about the big screen ahead. Dow Futures up 178. Happy Friday. We're back right after this. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back. Well, if you are in the Northeast, uh, I'm sorry to say it's going to be some nasty weather ahead as Tropical Storm Elsa now pounds its way up the East Coast from Florida. Let's get more now on the path and some of this morning's other big stories. Philip Menes in New York with that and more. Good morning, Philip. Hey, Brian. Good morning. Yeah, it is pretty intense around here. Tropical Storm Elsa is sweeping across the Northeast. New York City is already seeing some serious flooding and more rain is on the way. Pools are forming at subway stations and some roads had to be shut down. Uh, This storm even caused a summer hailstorm over in New Jersey. All of this ahead of this morning's arrival of the remnants of Tropical Storm Elsa to the area. The Phoenix Suns scorched the Bucks in Game 2 of the NBA Finals. Much like Game 1, Giannis Antetokounmpo put Milwaukee on his back with a 42-point performance. But it wasn't enough to stop the white-hot Phoenix backcourt of Devin Booker and Chris Paul. Booker scored 31 to give the Suns a 2-0 series lead. Phoenix wins 118-108. Game 3 is Sunday in Milwaukee. We have a new Scripps National Spelling Bee champion, and she's a true groundbreaker.
14-year-old Zaila Avangarde from Louisiana is the first African-American winner in the 96-year history of the contest. But that's not all. She also holds three Guinness World Records in basketball, including one for dribbling six balls at once. And she hopes to one day attend Harvard and then go and play in the WNBA. Brian, back to you. That, is a, that young lady has some talent. My goodness. I'm trying to picture six balls at once and, like, reverse juggling. That sounds hard. <laughs> it sounds very difficult. Uh, so does spelling, though. So, you know, that's, that's out of my element at this point. You know, I, I'm an idiot. I, I stayed up and watched the entire game last night because I'm pulling for the Bucks. I got a lot of friends in Wisconsin, and maybe she should go for the Bucks because they need some help. Phoenix just lights out. Every player in Phoenix just throwing up balls, going in. I mean, it was just they look, they look hard to beat. Yeah, it could be their time, but like they say, series uh, doesn't really begin until uh, the home team loses a ball game. So, well, we'll see. As they, as they bring it back to Milwaukee in the five serve forum, Philomena. Right. Thank you, buddy. Have a good weekend. Appreciate you it. Too. All right. Thank you. Well, after being locked out all last year, Americans are going back to the movies in a big way this summer. Well, hopefully. And all those movies that didn't come out in the last year are starting to roll out right now. The big debut this weekend is that movie right now, Marvel's Black Widow, hitting both the big screen and Disney Plus today. Expectations, they are high. Let's talk more now about it with Eric Davis, managing editor at Fandango. Okay, Eric, it's coming out on Disney Plus and in the movies. Do we have any idea how many people are are still going to actually go to the movies and spend, you know, 20 bucks on on popcorn and soda versus staying at home and watching that, you know, 85 inch flat panel they probably bought during the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, which would cost you $30 because there is a bit of an upcharge if you do watch it on Disney Plus. But we have some kind of idea. It is the top preseller of 2021 on Fandango. It has sold more tickets uh, before release so far more than F9 and A Quiet Place Part 2. And it is even topping uh, pre-pandemic Marvel movies like Spider-Man Homecoming and Doctor Strange. Uh, so industry analysts are forecasting somewhere between an 80 and $90 million opening. Disney is saying $75 million, maybe a little bit on the conservative side. So this is going to be either number would be the biggest opening that we've had uh, so far since March of 2020. So, uh, so yeah, it's going to do well. Does it matter how well it does? It, and I mean that in a sense, Eric, it used to mean everything because we weren't watching new movies at home. We'd watch them six months later when they would come out on whatever. Are the numbers the equivalent anymore? Do we have any historical metric or has everything changed? I think everything has changed for the moment, at least, uh, because we're still sort of coming out of this thing. It's not like a light switch where you turn it on and then everything is back to normal. You know, you'll have uh, upside of 4000 theaters open this weekend for Black Widow, which may mark the most amount of theaters that uh, a film has been in post pandemic. But, you know, uh, uh, everybody's got to come back. And I th- still think there are some people that that don't want to come back or or uh, are hesitant. But we are seeing that, you know, with F9, with films like Quiet Place, when you have those big anticipated movies, even though they were supposed to come out last year, uh, people are still anticipating them. And uh, the numbers are there and they're climbing 
um, with each big film that comes out. How many movies are in the backlog, Eric? <laughs> there's, you know, there's a lot, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way. Um, but there are definitely, from here on out, I actually call it an endless summer because even once we get into September, you know, because there was a bit of a backlog, you're going to feel like there's still big blockbusters coming out every weekend. So if you're a movie fan, it's all good news for you. Uh, if you are a studio, there is a lot of jockeying in terms of release dates that have to happen, especially with those films that are on IMAX screens because there are a limited amount of them. Uh, but yeah, you know, we still have a big James Bond movie coming out this fall, a big Dune movie coming out this fall. I think we have like another four Marvel yeah. films coming out. So uh, there's a lot to look forward to. I'm looking forward to the Dune movie. I'm not going to lie. Maudib, you know, House of Trades. I just revealed myself to be a <clears throat> certain fan of certain science fiction. Eric Davis of Fandango. Appreciate it. We'll see you at the movies. Thank Eric, you. thank you. Take care. All right, still ahead, more of our exclusive conversation with Guggenheim partner Scott Minard. What he says about new headwinds that could face stocks, whether he is standing by that contrarian call that he made on rates on this very program two months ago. Dow futures up 182, oil's up, crypto's up. Glad you're up. We're back right after this. Turnaround Friday. Stocks looking to finish the week on a high note, but don't get too complacent. In our exclusive conversation, Guggenheim's Scott Minard says more pain could be in store in the months ahead. Even though we may soon have a correction, and I think it is coming, uh, we are a long way from the end of the bull market. The China fight heating up as the Biden administration set to add more Chinese companies to its blacklist. We'll tell you why. And Stripe taking a key step toward rolling out what could be the next blockbuster IPO. It's all happening on this Friday, July 9th. And this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, welcome or welcome back. Good Friday morning, 5.30 on the East Coast. Thanks for joining us here on this busy day. Let's hit the markets and futures. They are looking a lot better than they were this time yesterday. This time yesterday, we're like, oh, they're down 150. Now they're down 200. Now they're down 300. Well, today we're up. Not as much as we were down yesterday, but remember, we lost, what, 225 on the Dow? Dow futures up 188 right now. All the major averages fell roughly three-quarters of 1% yesterday. Some concerns about global economies, about the Delta variant, or there were just more sellers than buyers. That's the reason that I think the stocks fell. You heard John Nigerian tell you there was a huge bet in the options market against stocks. Flows were out, not in today. They may be in, not out. Dow futures up 188. The bond market, it's a big story lately because yields, they've been going down. We are up off our lows yesterday, but still low. We're at 134 right now in the 10-year. One point yesterday, we're at 1.25%, lowest level since February. We'll get more on all this with Guggenheim Scott Minard in our exclusive convo in just a moment. And breaking news out of China in the last few minutes. China announcing it is cutting banks' reserve ratio requirements. What does that mean? Okay, in a simple way, it's kind of a form of quantitative easing, a stimulus. It means banks are able to hold less money so they can lend out more. That move just announced by China's central bank about 10 minutes ago, an unexpected move. 
cutting that reserve ratio requirement, effectively saying to banks, okay, you can lend out more money. You don't need to hold as much. It's a way to maybe open up credit, stimulate lending, and maybe stimulate the economy. That just happening moments ago. There you see the yuan dollar combo. All right, we'll get more on all this in a minute. Let's get now to some of this morning's other top headlines, including and big breaking news on big tech. Christina is back with those. Christina. Yeah, that's exactly it, because we had Elon Mui uh, just uh, bringing us that breaking U.S. news earlier this hour, telling us the White House will today announce a new executive order aimed at cracking down on big technology. So among the headlines, the order will also call on regulators to enact reforms such as increasing scrutiny of tech mergers. Meantime, Reuters is reporting the Biden administration is apparently set to announce 10 more Chinese companies being added to its economic blacklist. The move could come as early as today and would follow last month's announcement of five other companies and other Chinese entities being added to that list over allegations of forced labor and human rights violations in the western region of that country. Reuters also reporting that Stripe has taken its first steps towards going public. The online payments processor has apparently hired a law firm to help with preparations for that expected IPO. The company was valued by investors at $95 billion following a fundraising round in March, making it one of the most valuable U.S. tech startups. And San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly is warning that the spread of the Delta variant of the coronavirus poses a key threat to the global recovery. Speaking with the Financial Times, Daly stressed that we are, quote, we are not through the pandemic. We are getting through the pandemic. She added that lagging vaccine campaigns abroad were constraining the economic rebound and could have negative ramifications for the United States. Brian, back to you. I get those vaccines around the world, mRNA. Luckily, that hospitalizations are still way down. Those vaccines work and natural immunity out there as well, too. We'll see how that plays in. Christina, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, let's get back now to the markets and your money and some of the wild moves that we have seen in bond price over the last two weeks. We normally don't say wild moves and bonds in the same sentence. Well, yields on the two-year, the 10-year, the 30-year, all the years are trading near their lowest levels since February. The 10-year note at 134 right now. Remember about two months ago when yields started surging, well above 1.7% in the 10-year. Guggenheim partner Scott Minard was one of the only people, maybe the only person, calling for lower yields, much lower yields by year's end. It was and remains a very contrarian call at the time, but it's starting to look right in the money. We were able to catch up with Scott again late yesterday, and we began our interview by asking him, what he saw in bonds that maybe others missed, and who's buying all the bonds that's pushing yields down? Well, you know, Brian, I think you may remember in early March, I wrote a piece called A Drunk Man in the Snow. And I talked about uh, mean reversion and the fact that the, you know, the 35-plus-year bond rally had not ended yet, and uh, that the downtrend was solidly in place. And until we had something that would indicate that we were breaking that trend, that our expectation should be that rates should come back down. And uh, there are some other factors that, you know, we, I talked about. Uh, the Treasury was going to spend down its cash balance, which was going to force a lot of cash into the market, which would force banks and other institutions to have to reach out the yield curve to find any kind of yield. And so... Um, I mean, it seems to have all played out that way. And so is that who's doing the buying in your mind? Is it the big Wall Street banks? Is it pension funds? Is it sovereign, foreign sovereigns? 
Uh, I think it's all of the above. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of money coming in from overseas. Uh, we are still, you know, perhaps the the highest yielding market in the the uh, developed markets. Uh, there's uh, pension fund money that has to be put to work. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, you know, we manage a lot of insurance company assets and uh, flows coming in from insurance companies, especially for fixed annuity products, uh, is exceptionally strong. And so, uh, you know, it's it's amazing. The little guy out there is, uh, you know, who's who's wanting to make sure they have some income for retirement. Uh, are trying to lock in something now because I think they they're uh, afraid that they could get to a point where they're not getting paid anything. Are you you still think we get into year where one percent or at least under one and a half percent? Yeah, I think. Look, I think we will and easily under one and a half percent. You know, we're sitting here around one and a quarter. I put out a tweet this morning that you know we're reaching some technical levels here where we probably you know need to you know, start to think about what the longer term uh, view is. Uh, But I just did some charts before I came in the room and and I don't really see uh, any significant uh, resistance for the continuation and the decline of yields until we get to 1%. Uh, And then um, I don't think that's that significant. Meaning, you know, there there is a, a support for yields that they don't go lower, but it's not exceptionally strong. And uh, technically, it looks like we're going back to the lows, which would be 65 basis points. Wow. Is there some maybe hidden risk to these rates, Scott? And I don't want to get too in the weeds, but things like mortgage convexity, right? Corporate bonds, things that are tied to rates that we may not be aware of. Is there any under the hood risk to these levels? Well, you mean, I mean, first off, the uh, uh, the convexity argument, Brian, uh, if anything, uh, mortgage uh, mortgages are going to prepay, which that money has to get redeployed again, which will put downward pressure on rates. Um, the, um, uh, you know, the seasonals at this time of the year are very favorable uh, for bond yields and, or bond prices, if you will, to, to see them go higher. And then, of course, you know, there's always um, uh, what I would think of as the exogenous factors. But uh, before we go there, uh, you know, I remember Alan uh, Shaw, who I studied technical analysis with with back in the 80s, and he is the great dean of of technicians. And he he told me a story about how he, once working as a fundamental analyst, uh, had an older mentor, and they did a call with a company, and they said, um, you know, things, the response to the CEO of the company was, it couldn't be any better. And they, and they hung up the phone and the older analyst instructed Alan to write a sell report. And he goes, why would we sell, write a sell report? And they go, it couldn't be any better. And that's the case with the economy. It couldn't be any better. And so uh, if it can't be any better, then, uh, you know, things will be slower in the future. And uh, uh, growth will start to slow down. And then the base effect on uh, uh, inflation will uh, start to show reducing inflation. And candidly, the market just hasn't been set up for that. And investors haven't been set up for that. That's a, it's an interesting anecdote. So uh, is that a risk to equities? People think of you as a bond guy, but you can do whatever you want, really. I mean, uh, you know, there's a point at which some people say, well, low rates are great for tech stocks because the valuations can stretch. 
But is there a rate on yields that suggests that things, to your point, are risky and are bad for equities? What do you see for stocks? Well, you know, uh, trees don't grow straight to the sky. And we've had a great run here. And, you know, Ned Davis Associates has done a lot of work in this area. Uh, you know, their work shows that we should expect in the second year of, uh, of a bull market that we would get something like a 16 to 18% correction. Uh, the, the seasonals in stocks have turned negative at the end of May. Uh, you know, the old adage of sell in May, go away. And so, uh, uh, you know, there are, I think people at this stage of the game are pretty fully invested. So you have to wonder where the next dollar is coming from. And so I think that uh, we are prone to seeing a setback in stocks. But, you know, I want to be careful, Brian. Um, you know, the, the current valuation of forward earnings of about 22 times on the S&P uh, is just about fair pricing based upon where long-term rates are. If long-term rates are continue to fall, uh, we have room at some point here to see another leg up in stocks. And if you believe uh, Ed Hyman's uh, estimates of a $250 S&P earnings number, uh, you know, you put a 20 multiple on that, the S&P is at 5,000. So I think we're, I think we're, even though we may soon have a correction, and I think it is coming, uh, we are a long way from the end of the bull market. So, so fair to say, short term, maybe next couple of months, seasonality, Ned Davis research, look for a possible correction in equities. Long term, you are still bullish stocks as long as rates stay where they are or even move down. Fair to say? Fair enough. Now, you, it's not just your rate call that looks good. A couple months ago, you made a call on Bitcoin. Just again, using you're not some crypto expert. You don't claim to be, but you're looking at the charts. And you said Bitcoin is prone for a 50% retracement. I believe that, Scott, that's exactly what we got. So congratulations again on that call. Any view on cryptos now? Because the interest seems to have waned. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, when I did the, uh, my work on crypto, uh, you know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies had plainly just gone you know, parabolic. And parabolic markets are, you know, are, are impossible to sustain. So, um, you know, a, a normal correction you would think is or a sell off would be, you know, 40 to 50 percent. But, you know, when we look at um, the history of crypto and we look at where we are, I mean, I really do believe this is probably a crash. And, you know, a crash would mean we'd be down 70 to 80 percent, which let's just say that's between 10 and 15,000. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Brian, you, the market is trading heavy. Uh, it's very hard to get this thing to reverse. And uh, I, I don't see any you know, reason, put it this way, I wouldn't be in a hurry to buy Bitcoin. Uh, and I, I don't see any reason to own it right now. And I think the risk is, you know, if you're going to be a speculator, speculate that it's heading lower. Well, thanks to Scott Minard. And do not miss the full interview with Scott. We actually talk more than we have time for right here. And I asked him, what he says is the greatest risk to global markets right now. His answer, it had nothing to do with COVID or variants. And it may surprise you because it's something that I haven't heard anybody else talk about. You get his answer to that and more on CBC.com right now. All right, well, we're not done yet. And coming up, are you dreading going to the airport this weekend? The crowds, you know, they got you down. Well, your morning RBI is ahead and it's got some stunning stats on just how well the other half really is living and flying. Ugh. We're back in a moment. It's
It is time for your morning RBI. And a few days ago, we talked about the return of air travel, how we actually surpassed 2019 levels of flyers on July 2nd. Well, shame on us, because we should have been more clear about what kind of air travel we we're talking about. Because according to FlightAware, one kind of flying isn't just already above pre-pandemic levels. It is nearly 50% above pre-pandemic levels. And that kind of flying is the rarefied air flying private. Look at this random but interesting stat. The average number of private business flights per day, that does not include cargo, by the way, it's just personal jets and prop planes, was just over 12,000 a day a couple of days ago. And that is an incredible 45% above where it was before COVID. In fact, as you can see, it never really slowed down. The most popular business airports, by the way, no surprise. Teterboro, New Jersey is number one in terms of traffic. Palm Beach and then Dallas Love Field. The most popular planes for all this private jet travel. The Citation XL, the Embraer Phenom, and the Hawker 700, darling. Hey, at least those are smaller private jets, right? Well, the bottom line is this. The pandemic caused private travel to pop and it was all about people going back and forth between New York and South Florida, apparently. A little Dallas thrown in on the side. Not a bad life if you can afford it. Everybody but us, folks, apparently is flying private. Random, but interesting. I'll see you at the airport. All right, on deck. Turnaround Friday. Futures surging as buyers come back after yesterday's flow-driven sell-off. We'll talk more about that and taxes coming up next. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you missed the show, no worries. Download it, stream it, whatever, and leave a nice review while you're there. We do it for you. Dow Futures up 150. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. Well, when it comes to stocks and markets and investing, we talk about a lot of stuff, why things are up and down. But one thing perhaps we are not talking about enough are taxes. They are likely to go up for higher earning working families and corporations alike. But should concern over taxes change your investing strategy? How does it all play in? Let's welcome in Jill Garvey, Senior Wealth Strategist at Huntington Private Bank. It is, I guess, one of the few realities, right? Death and you know what, Jill, and If you believe what the White House is saying, it is likely we are going to get higher taxes on certain income levels. Should that change the way we think about markets and investing? Absolutely, Brian. Good morning. It's great to see you, as always. It's so interesting to me that individuals may not put as much emphasis on taxes as they should. It's the single largest expense that we will pay over our lifetimes. So what we're hearing from our clients right now, Brian, is what will happen with the potential tax changes. We think there's a very high likelihood that ordinary income tax rates could go up as soon as next year. Couple that with a high likelihood that corporate tax rates could go up, maybe not to the 28% that's proposed, but certainly 25% is more likely. Capital gains tax rates increases, we're kind of lukewarm on that right now, Brian, but that's certainly factoring into a lot of the decisions that clients are contemplating and the recommendations we're making. We work with multiple Mm. business owners in the Midwest and the Great Lakes region, and right now we're encouraging them to consider selling if they have not already and try to get that sale closed before the end of the year 
to hedge your bets. Selling their family business or selling stocks or selling both? Great question. Selling family businesses where it's appropriate and it meets the family's goals and selling stocks. We work with a number of executives who have concentrated positions. So where it's appropriate for them, we think that they should dollar cost average out of the stock, which is their concentration. Okay, so sell the family business. That's obviously a big, that's a big job. That's a big story. From an equity market perspective, though, if you are in the income group that, by the way, the same income group that's likely to get a higher tax rate is also the, the, primarily the investing class as well, uh, for good or ill, but we're CNBC, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, do you lock in long-term capital gains? I mean, if I've owned Amazon for 12 years, should I sell some now? I think it makes sense to do that, Brian. Again, we know what rate we're paying now. The risk of the capital gains tax rate increases being retroactive to the beginning of the year. We think that risk is low, or even April 28th as of the date of announcements. The past several capital gains tax rate increases have been as of the date of enactment or prospective. It's always a good idea to look at when you can lock in rates and looking at the economics of the stocks that you hold as well. And that's what a great advisor can do for you. Do you think it's enough to bring down the overall markets? We don't think it's enough to bring down the overall markets, but it's certainly a factor and a consideration in how we're guiding our clients. As an example, the corporate rate going up to, again, let's think of a 25% rate, and then the talk of a global minimum tax rate, which still has a long way to go, that is going to put pressure on certain companies, certainly those that have international exposure and the other sectors are really, that's uncertain as to what the effect will be. So I think this week Mm. has shown us in the market that there aren't necessarily any new trends that we see forthcoming, but we want our clients to remain broadly diversified and when we can trim positions and take advantage of the volatility yesterday to add into our post-recessionary positioning. So you were one of the buyers that's bringing the futures up right now, Jill. (laughs) That's right. Our equity analysts are always looking to see when we can buy. And we saw some interesting things happening yesterday with certain sectors, such as industrials, which for post-pandemic, post-recessionary positioning, that's a good day for us. We say, who's buying on the dips? I'm going to say Jill Harvey, Huntington yeah, Private Bank, right. and her team were buy low, sell high, or buy high, or sell higher, or something like that. Jill Garvey, thank you very much. We appreciate you joining us. Uh, have a great weekend, Jill. Take care. Tell Steve we said hello. Uh, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Always nice on a Friday, folks, to say, hey, enjoy the weekend. With Dow futures up 150, you got crypto is up. Big moves in bonds, a little move in oil higher as well. OPEC is still out there. There's a lot going on. I will see you, by the way, on the 5 p.m. show tonight, Fast Money. We call it 10 the Hard Way, double fives. Meantime, Squawk is next. Take care. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 